Okay, so uh, I want to thank everyone for being here today. Um, my name is Melanie Thompson. I am uh, happy to co-moderate this session today with uh, my colleague and friend, Paul Volberding. Um, I am an HIV physician in Atlanta, Georgia, and past principal investigator of the AIDS Research Consortium of Atlanta and co-chair of the HIVMA IDSA HIV primary care guidance. Um, Paul, as everyone knows, um, is uh, the founding board chair of the IAS USA. And uh, we'll hear more from Paul and his experience today. He was a medical oncologist before he became involved in the very early AIDS epidemic in San Francisco uh, at uh, San Francisco General Hospital. Um, so today we are really gonna have a great dialogue, I think. Um, we're going to discuss a new book called Dispatches from the AIDS Pandemic. And uh, this will be an introduction to the book for you, but really we wanna just have some informal conversation with the three writers. There'll be about 40 minutes of dialogue and then 20 minutes of uh, Q&A from the audience. So I would encourage you to uh, please enjoy putting comments in the chat. But if you have questions, please put them in the Q&A and we'll be picking up some of those questions as many as we can uh, toward the end of the session. So uh, bef uh, without any further ado, I would like to introduce our three panelists. And I know that all of these people are familiar to you, um, but uh, I will just give you a very brief thumbnail. Um, Dr. Jim Curran uh, earned his medical degree at the University of Michigan and an MPH at Harvard, and then in 1981, he went to CDC, where he had a 25-year history, um, really focusing on AIDS prevention and research uh, and attaining the position of Assistant Surgeon General. Uh, Jim became the leader of the task force to explore uh, Kaposi's sarcoma and these new diseases that were emerging in the early 80s. Um, he spent uh, from 1995 to 2022 as Dean of the Rollins School of Public Health uh, at Emory and co-director of Emory's Center for AIDS Research. And he is, um, uh, and the School of Public Health deanship now bears his name. So um, thanks for joining us today, Jim. And uh, also Harold Jaffe is a UCLA trained infectious disease physician and epidemiologist. Uh, Harold joined CDC as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer, and he was pulled into the original CDC task force led by Jim uh, and assigned to study these diseases that became known as AIDS. From 2004 to 2010, he was head of the Department of Public Health at the University of Oxford, and he returned to CDC as its Associate Director of Science in 2010 until his retirement in 2016. And Harold is still doing some consulting for CDC. And Kevin DeCock, uh, as many of you know, is our expert in international AIDS. He received his diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene at the University of Liverpool. And he completed a fellowship in hepatology at the University of Southern California. 
He joined CDC in 1986 as an EIS officer looking at viral hemorrhagic fevers. But he went on to become the director of uh, the CDC's country mission in Kenya and a leader for Ebola in Liberia. He directed the CDC Center for Global Health and the CDC Division of HIV AIDS Prevention, Surveillance, and Epidemiology. And then from 2006 to 2009, uh, became director of the World Health Organization's Department of HIV AIDS and oversaw all of WHO's work regarding HIV AIDS. So uh, this is really a stellar panel. And so I wanna kick off just by asking each one of you to give us a little bit of background about why you wrote this book. What is this book about to you? And what would you like this audience to take home from today's dialogue? Jim, let's start with you. Um, muted. There yeah. you go. So thanks, Melanie. I, I, I want to quickly defer to my uh, colleagues who were first and second authors of the book, uh, Kevin DeCock and Harold Jaffe, but only to say that we, we saw in writing this book uh, from a CDC perspective, um, our area of expertise and thought that the CDC had, uh, you know, was far from being dominant in, in areas of AIDS but, but did continue to contribute and, and still does over the last 40 plus years. So we thought that we were well positioned to catalog that and put that in. So I'd like to turn it over if I could to Kevin, I guess is next. You guys had a yeah. little rehearsal last week while I was in New York. <laughs> yeah, uh, th thank you. Uh, thanks, Melanie and Jim. <clears throat> um, for, uh, firstly, I'm, I'm very much the junior member of this trio uh, both Jim and Harold have been mentors and supervisors, but I think it must have been in the late 90s when I was head of AIDS surveillance and epidemiology in Atlanta that I remember a conversation with Jim, and I think it was then that I said to him, Jim, you ought to write a book, and um, countless other people said that to him, I'm sure, and I think I repeated it over the years, and then talking with Harold uh, in 2019 or so, in 2020, we actually started writing it. Um, I, I was struck, um, gosh, must have been about uh, in 2011, when the three of us wrote a, a piece on 30 years of AIDS. I, I went through all the MMWRs, and I was struck that there must have been over 50 MMWR publications in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, documenting this history. And it really, it was one of the reasons why I thought, gosh, the story from from CDC's perspective, by no means the whole story, obviously, but it, it merited documenting. So that was sort of the origins of the idea anyway. Let me stop there. Carol? From my, from my perspective, I think the goal of the book was to establish a historical record of what CDC actually did in the early days. Uh, otherwise, it's going to get lost. It's been 40 years already. 50 years from now when none of us will be around, or at least none of the old folks will be around. We want this to be the place people will look to find out what CDC actually did. And I think it will accomplish that goal, at least I hope it will. Hey, uh, Melanie, this is Paul. Um, let me just uh, to jump in to th this group of, of, of folks that we are be, gonna be talking to. 
Um, just to point out that um, I think all the attendees uh, for this have access to the list of participants in this, uh, in this uh, uh, event today. And I'm already seeing some chat uh, going on. Uh, the attendees, uh, can, in many cases, could very well be uh, be an important part of this dialogue. It's it's just great to see some of the some of the names of some of our colleagues from uh, from way back, Merv Silverman, Harry Haverkos, and, and and others. Uh, and and I won't I won't name any more names because it's uh, th that's dangerous. Of course, we'll uh, forget some of our best friends. Uh, but but I think uh, I think the people that are attending are a testimony to the uh, to the uh, you know to the high esteem that our that our guests today uh, are held by uh, by their colleagues uh, for the pioneering work that they and and their organization the CDC did uh, in response to this. Uh, Melanie, maybe I can just kick off with with a with a question uh, as well. Um, even before um, the first reports of, of AIDS, uh, the CDC was involved in some activities that, uh, that were very important in, in our early understanding. And I just wonder if, if I guess probably either or Jim or Harold might comment that uh, from a San Francisco point of view, the, the hepatitis uh, B uh, uh, cohort uh, which kind of still is telling us something about about the the early uh, introduction and spread of HIV, uh, as I understand it from the book, was a CDC effort and and kind of the the uh, uh, you know the, the amazing uh, job you guys had in anticipating perhaps uh, what what might be uh, what might be coming. Anyone want to comment on on the hepatitis cohort as it as it uh, played out? Uh, from the CDC's point of view? I think Jim could comment on that. Oh, <clears throat> one of the, uh, you know, in the early years of the Reagan administration, and even before that, the CDC's hepatitis division was uh, deeply engaged in the epidemiology of, uh, of hepatitis B and the, in anticipation of an effective hepatitis B vaccine. And this involved colleagues from New York, uh, New York Blood Center, uh, a lot of people from throughout the country. And we began in that collaboration with a, a resource commitment. I know uh, as chief of the, of the STD research branch, I committed uh, two thirds of our budget to hepatitis B, even though we weren't really in charge of hepatitis B at the, at the CDC. I just thought that it was so important and such an opportunity and that established uh, five cohorts uh, throughout the country, St. Louis, but the biggest one, of course, was in San Francisco. And that allowed us to collect information and collect blood from people beginning in 1978. Now, this was the middle of a huge pandemic of STDs in gay and straight communities in the 1970s and 1980s. And as I remember, there were about three or 400 gay men per day coming to the STD clinic in San Francisco. So uh, this was obviously an extremely high priority for gay men in San Francisco and led to studies, uh, including the one that Harold Jaffe uh, published later on, looking at antibody to what is now HIV in that cohort of gay men. Most importantly, I think it, it led us to have a lot of uh, contacts in the gay community 
and among physicians in the gay community, including the Bay Area Physicians for Human Rights with Bob Bolin and others, um, that allowed us to uh, gain insights, um, particularly in New York and in California, from physicians who were seeing men um, with a variety of conditions, uh, most predominantly AIDS, and now we know is part of the syndrome. Great. What was it like in those early days, um, Jim, Harold, Kevin? You know, what are your memories of some of those earliest cases? You know, obviously in the beginning, no one knew what this was, but there were striking cases that you outlined beautifully in the book. Um, but but what are your personal memories of that time? What what were you thinking? What uh, what got you uh, started down this path? How did you pursue? these odd cases that were coming in the CDC. Harold, do you want to go first? First cases I saw were courtesy of a Dr. Paul Volberding, who was a young mm -hmm. oncologist I met in San Francisco, and he was very kind in allowing me to go to his ward and see some Kaposi's sarcoma cases. And they were very striking. These young men were covered with Kaposi's sarcoma lesions. They were wasting away. They looked like Auschwitz survivors. And I just was struck by what a horrible disease this was. It just seemed to come out of the blue. For me, um, I, I was teaching internal medicine in Nairobi, at the University of Nairobi, Kenyatta National Hospital from 79 to 82. And I remember where I was sitting in the medical school library when I first read about six months after the MMWR article, where I was sitting reading, I think, an article in The Lancet, thinking this is a very peculiar thing. I left and went back to London for a year, and it was talked about. But when I got to Los Angeles in 83 to do my fellowship in hepatology, working with a main interest in viral hepatitis, of course, I was dealing with the same population, and there was so much overlap. And, I mean, several cases stick in the mind. I think we saw... In retrospect, I'm sure we saw a case of acute HIV seroconversion illness, which had not yet been described at that time. It was, of course, described by David Cooper and his group in Australia, um, and a number of other things, including the profound shame and stigma that some of the patients suffered. I remember a, a man who came in with pneumonia, and we couldn't diagnose it. And um, eventually I said, well, we, we must do a bronchoscopy. He didn't admit to being gay. Of course, it was pneumocystis. And once the diagnosis was made, he, he, he said, yes, he was a gay man. Those are sort of some of the typical early memories. For the first patient I saw was uh, a man in New York when one week after the uh, first MMWR was published in June 1981, I, I went to New York and met with Linda, the late Linda Lobenstein, who was a an oncologist. And then I, we also met Bijan Safai, who was kind of the national expert for Memorial Sloan Kettering and Kaposi's sarcoma. Um, it turned out that the man was exactly my age and went to a, a Catholic prep school in Detroit, just like I did. He was a little smarter when I went to Notre Dame, he went to Yale, and then he became a, an actor. Um, and uh, he and I shared, you know, growing up, Catholic in Detroit, and he had these funny lesions on his face and was worried about his acting career. I had a chance to see him four or five more times until he passed away. 
in an intensive care unit in NYU from disseminated KS. And I always thought, you know, we were so much alike, um, but he was tall and gay and I was short and straight. And the main difference between us uh, was this unknown horrible disease that he got and I didn't. One of the one of the things that I've uh, flashed on many times over the years uh, is the the remarkable similarity of of you know us the the early responders from the medical community and our patient population. We're kind of all about the same age. We'd all gone to the same schools. I, th I think Jim, we have to ignore your uh, disregard for Notre Dame. You know, <laughs> I, I'm sure people in Indiana are, are really aghast, but. Um, but I, I'm interested. Uh, Harold mentioned uh, early contacts with some of the some of the physicians uh, that you know were becoming involved in this. You guys were also very involved in in contacts with the local health departments. I know Mer Silverman from San Francisco is on on the call today. But um, I, I'm interested in kind of what the network that you had uh, through the local, regional, state um, organizations was and how that was used uh, to kind of sort out some of these early reports that you were hearing about. That's one for Jim. Okay, Jim. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think one of the lessons that uh, the AIDS response uh, gave to the world was the importance of the communities and working together, and of course, Melanie was was one of the leaders of the in the in the nation of this, um, and particularly also from a research point of view, showed the importance of community based research. But the community based advocacy was absolutely crucial to getting us the government and everyone else off our butts to do something, and uh, you know whether it was ACT UP or many of the other groups. It was extremely important, and I think one anecdote we we point out in the book was that you know sometimes uh, they were acting up against us, not just with us, to get our attention. This is true for NIH and and the rest of the government. But I I can remember more than once um, working with a a, a strong uh, critical community and asking you know where was Doctor So and So or Mister So and So. And they said, well, he died. And you realize that a lot of these people were fighting for their own lives and they were fighting despite the fact that they were suffering so much. And it just had to really uh, stick in. And of course that led, led to, you know, uh, community activists with breast cancer and, and many other things. And I think now it's, it's more established because of the strength of the advocacy in the AIDS community for people to be engaged in their own uh, future with their own diseases. I'd like to mention just one other patient that I remember. I was working in the AIDS clinic at Grady Hospital in the early days. We only had AZT, which was, had to be taken five times a day. This patient asked me, is it important I try to take my medicine on time? And I said, yeah, you should try to do it. He said, well, I live in a cardboard box and it's hard to get water. And I thought, my God, AIDS isn't even the most important problem this guy has. And it gave me some insight into the many social problems that came along with the AIDS epidemic that really weren't being highlighted at the time. I think that's so true. And we see that um, 
very, very starkly today. Um, and disparities are certainly a huge part of this um, epidemic. You know, uh, there were a number of mentions in the book about uh, racism. Kevin, you just mentioned stigma. Uh, how do you think that these played into our inability to get hold of this disease over time? Yeah, well, perhaps I can answer. Um, I think domestically, it was a big issue. And we point out, and I remember Jim, I remember a plenary, Jim, that you gave, I think it was at the Washington AIDS conference in 1987, mm -hmm. that would have been. Um, I remember a plenary you gave that focused on heterosexual transmission and the link, mother to child transmission and the link to injecting drug use. And I think we do comment in the book that that whole area was one that CDC was a bit remote from, partly because um, because um, substance use was handled by other government agencies. But then I think also in terms of the international epidemic, um, you know, the, the, fa the, 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 the fact that this disease was spreading in Africa and that at first we really didn't understand at all, you know, what these links between these different phenomena were. And I think at first it was considered, um, you know, it's very much an African problem and not anybody else's. And certainly a lot of people suffered from that. I remember working in, working in Africa in the late full time from the, for CDC from 88 onwards, um, seeing many cases of, of, of discrimination, people losing their employment uh, and so on and so forth because of, uh, because of HIV AIDS. Now, one of the um, things that uh, that I was thinking about just now as people were uh, talking is that, you know, we're not going to kind of dig into COVID today. Uh, we could, obviously, and given uh, given the importance of that. But one of the things that we're starting to see is that with COVID, too, you know, we're seeing a community uh, a mobilization reaction, especially around long COVID. We've seen some controversy recently about the definition of that. That made me kind of pay attention as I was reading this book to uh, what you all went through, um, what we all went through in a sense in defining uh, this condition. Um, you know, it's for, I'm sure for a lot of the younger people now, it's you can't quite imagine that, but there was a lot of controversy around uh, really what was AIDS and, you know, the old saw that you can't uh, uh, manage it if you can't measure it, you start by having a definition. I don't know if, if you guys want to talk about some of that. And I see Mary Chamberlain's on the on the attendee list too, somebody who was very involved in that. Uh, you know her. You want to talk about the definition uh, issue and how, how that was handled? Well, Harry Habercoast who's on the uh, <laughs> yeah. line actually developed the first case definition. I don't know, can he be hooked in? I don't think so, but why don't you speak for him if you want? Yeah, we were originally getting all sorts of weird case reports. I saw a gay man with this or that. You think it could be the disease that you're looking for? And that wasn't very satisfactory for setting up a national case definition. So we asked Harry to think about what the elements of the definition should be. We came up with three components. One, it should be a person under age 60 because we didn't want C sarcoma of the elderly to be a case. Second, it should be somebody without a known cause of immunodeficiency. 
such as an organ transplant. Concerned it had to be somebody with uh, biopsy-proven capsaicin sarcoma and or one of a list of about a dozen serious opportunistic infections. We thought that was a good basis for tracking at least the severe manifestations of the disease. I think Jim would agree that this was a very specific definition and, and probably served us well in the early days. I mean, I think that perhaps this case definition was one of the most important things that CDC contributed uh, to the early part of the AIDS epidemic because it was so specific. And, and that really reflects um, the early experience of physicians who saw people with AIDS. I mean, what was most remarkable was the condition itself. I remember Harry Havercos uh, came to CDC because he saw a case of pneumocystis pneumonia in, in Pittsburgh and said that case was so unusual and so devastating that I wanted to go work at CDC. <laughs> and uh, almost everybody who saw their original cases had never seen anything like this in their entire career. And it was so remarkable and so specific that it allowed us to make a case definition which could track uh, the origins of, of AIDS of, in, in, in terms of cases in the United States, uh, could track uh, specifically who was getting it, where they were getting it, and how frequent it was and whether or not it was increasing. So although we knew it lacked sensitivity, it was very, very specific. And that was important in showing that this problem was increasing and going other places, was not restricted to California and New York, was not restricted to gay men, and was adapted almost immediately by developed countries throughout the world uh, to track the epidemic and show that it was increasing. Um, Eventually, of course, once HIV was discovered, the important thing, I think, was that virtually everybody who fit the case definition was HIV positive. And that shows that it was very specific and that it was the tip of an iceberg of a much bigger epidemic. I, I, I would add that in the book, I think surveillance is uh, discussed in several places. Um, in the first part, dealing primarily with the early epidemic in the States, but then also later in, 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 the, uh, in the third section of the book with um, the evolution of case definitions, because of course, with further knowledge that uh, the case definitions were expanded and adapted. And, um, and then of course, with the advent of antiretroviral therapy, AIDS case surveillance suddenly became totally jeopardized. And I mean, we almost lost ability to track the epidemic because if, if cases, um, because ART just halted the connection between HIV infection and AIDS, uh, if, if AIDS cases increased, you didn't know whether that meant increased transmission or treatment failure or lack of access. And similarly, if uh, they declined, you couldn't figure it out. So it was a, a very dynamic um, thing. Um, I hope that we sort of made the concept of surveillance relatively interesting in the book, because what, what amazed me in my job in the late 90s was, you know, I always thought surveillance was pretty dry, and yet it became hugely controversial as we moved to HIV reporting, the whole issue of report which identifier to use and going to uh, named reporting like we had for AIDS case surveillance. So a really big, big topic, one of CDC's major responsibilities really uh, up to this day.
So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the international aspect of, of the pandemic and um, CDC's role, uh, but, but also uh, maybe Kevin, you could kick this off by telling us some of the challenges that you found in those early days. And then also bring us up to the present in terms of the countries who have really done well in managing this epidemic and what we might learn from them. That's a very broad topic, Melanie. Thank you. So um, you can have the rest of the uh, hour to finish that. <laughs> I won't do that. Um, um, the early, I mean, it was in the early 80s, around 83 or so, um, you know, CDC had been struggling from 82 with the problem of AIDS in uh, people from Haiti. And at the same time in Europe, um, you know, authorities and practitioners were seeing strange cases of apparent similar disease to AIDS in Africans, mainly from Central Africa. And at one stage, they, I mean, they, they accounted for in, in about 84, 83, 84 or so, they accounted for about 20% of reported cases in Europe. Um, I think it was extremely, I wasn't at CDC then, I was in Los Angeles. Um, I had been working in Kenya, as I said, up to the 82. Looking back, I did not, I, I mean, I've, I've really sort of asked myself, could I have ever seen an AIDS case in East Africa before? And the answer is no, I don't think I did. But I think Jim and colleagues were very prescient in organizing a study in Kinshasa in late 83, um, really a pilot, uh, an exploratory study to see what was going on with uh, my uh, first CDC supervisor, Joe McCormick, who was a head of hemorrhagic fevers. And that and some Belgian work in Rwanda were really critical in demonstrating that there was an ongoing heterosexual epidemic and that it was a big deal. Um, and it really went from there. Um, um, again, Jim and colleagues, I think we're, and Jim, I'd like to ask Jim to comment on how difficult was it to commit domestic resources to this really pretty outlandish idea at first of, of setting up a, a research site in Central Africa? Um, um, it was an immensely important thing to do. Of course, it led to the dramatic career of Jonathan Mann, who really molded to this day, I think, his work has molded the global AIDS response. Um, so the the advent of Projet Sida in Kinshasa, I think, was a key first step. And perhaps we can discuss later what's happened since then, the whole story of the response, PEPFAR, the Global Fund, WHO, UNAIDS, and so on. But Jim, I wonder if you could just comment on what, how easy was it for you to decide to fund that first study, um, which was a bit of a shot in the dark, really, and then the one in 83, published in 84, and then to actually send John Mann to Kinshasa. So, um, you know, Joe McCormick, who was a hemorrhagic fever guy uh, and had worked in uh, both what was then called Zaire, but also um, further up, um, well, both in Kinshasa, but also further up in, in the uh, Yambuku area, um, were, were over there with Peter Piot from Institute of Tropical Medicine and Tom Quinn, who was representing NIAID on kind of a joint uh, measure that was hosted by um, 
Dr. Bila Kapita, who was the chair of medicine at Mamiyamo Hospital. And Joe brought his lab technician, who is Sheila Mitchell, who, of course, ended up with a very distinguished career in AIDS herself. Um, and she was the person that actually could perform T-cell subsets. And, you know, there, were no, there was no AIDS virus then. So you had to determine whether people had um, immunodeficiency by doing T-cell subsets. And, of course, having Sheila there was absolutely crucial. When they came back, they convinced, uh, we were able to convince the director of CDC at the time. I think it was, I think it was Jim Mason, maybe, or maybe. It was. No, it was Bill Fagey. It might have still been Bill Fagey that this was something we should get engaged with because it was obviously a huge problem in Zaire and that we should commit money to do it and to find somebody to run it. So we found the state epidemiologist of New Mexico who was married to uh, a French woman had studied at the Sorbonne and was fluent in French, who was looking for a new challenge, Jonathan Mann. So I met with him immediately because we wanted to make sure that this was not just the Institute of Medicine NIH study. Um, and that we said, um, um, you know, uh, he said, I'll take the job. I said, but you've never been to Africa. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to let you do that until you and your wife visit. So we immediately put him on a plane. He came back and they said, we'll take the job. <laughs> and um, I found a million dollars, which accompanied uh, uh, some effort and a little less money from NIH and Institute of Tropical Medicine and said, John, go run this study. And uh, he went over there immediately with his family. And uh, he got there in 1984 uh, and started establishing things. And this guy could establish things. He, could, he knew how to implement. And then I said, well, John, you know, you're supposed to be publishing articles. So he said, oh. <laughs> and he published 24 peer-reviewed articles the first two years um, and gave a talk at the first International AIDS Conference in 1985, which was remarkable. I mean, uh, that's, of course, when the conferences were free to everybody and there was not quite as commercialized, but he gave the plenary talk on, on AIDS in Africa and I think established what it, at the time was going to be the largest AIDS research effort in the continent um, with over 300 employees eventually before uh, Zaire fell apart. But it was very, very important. And then he left. Um, he left in two years to start what became the Global Program on AIDS, still assigned by CDC to that effort. So the, Jim, the, uh, the 1985 conference is also remembered for uh, Margaret Heckler uh, predicting uh, the, the onset of a, of a vaccine uh, very soon. But uh, uh, I think Jonathan was a more important component of that, uh, <laughs> that conference, as you point out. I wanna, I wanna bring it back. Uh, uh, at least temporarily, to, to the U.S. and to another episode that the CDC uh, really uh, did a remarkable job with that's still somewhat controversial, this outbreak investigation. You know where I'm going to go with this question. Um, in Southern California, uh, David Hardy is on the attendee list. He was around at that time. Uh, but this um, outbreak that led to a patient, um, it's been variously called zero or O, um, and, and I just want to 
just a couple comments. I know it's it's addressed nicely in in the book, uh, Jim or Harold. Maybe I can start on that. The first clue we got about that cluster came from David Auerbach, who was a CDC Epidemic Intelligence Service officer assigned to Los Angeles County, and he had heard from his contacts in the gay community that some of the early cases might have been sexual partners. He wanted to interview them, but he had no experience doing that. So we sent out Bill Darrow, a research sociologist who had a lot of experience interviewing cases to work with Dave. And within just a few days, they established that three or four patients in the Los Angeles area had, had contact with each other. And they named an out-of-California case who was a flight attendant for Air Canada, became known as patient zero. Bill continued the investigation in New York and was able to establish links between 40 cases in North America and 10 North American cities with patient O or zero at the, beginning, at the center of it. We originally used the designation O for outside of California and the other cities that we mentioned, but that quickly morphed into the number zero and it became known as patient zero. Some people interpreted that as meaning we thought he was the origin of the epidemic in North America. We never thought that, we never said that, but people took it that way. And Randy Schultz used it as sort of a hook to sell his book about the early AIDS epidemic. Yeah, I, I, I saw uh, the patient, Guyton, uh, uh, briefly at San Francisco General Hospital. And, and I know the family has been uh, expressed concern afterwards that uh, they felt uh, that this, that he was unfairly Characterize this, and it's a, it's a. I think there are lessons there, and in, in in this, I, I also was struck uh, when I was uh, giving a talk in Miami, not that long ago actually, but before the pandemic, um, uh, that the the issue of AIDS in Haitians is still um, uh, quite it's quite it's quite an emotional one, um, and just this as people have said, the dry case definition and in, in, in dry epidemiology actually is not dry. It's got a lot of uh, connection to, to the human condition. And if anyone want to comment on kind of how blame ends up being part of this, I think it takes us back to the stigma discussion earlier. I think it's a, it's a very difficult question. Um, you know, the in Africa, the the suggestion that AIDS had an African origin, which we discuss in detail in the book, um, was extremely controversial and aroused a lot of anger and a lot of emotion. Um, yet the question is unavoidable, and of course the, here there is a direct link with everything we're hearing about COVID. Um, I mean, science will do what science does; it will follow you know, questions that seem intriguing or important. But secondly, when you have a new infection, uh, especially one that causes a pandemic, you kind of have to understand how this came about to try and prevent it happening again, or to certainly to mitigate consequences. So, you know, I, I'm sure that science and organizations like CDC might have done better in retrospect. But I think, you know, I think CDC was a pretty honorable throughout this whole, both Haiti and African discussion. I think with time it has gotten, you know, better, it's sort of, it, the, the controversy has settled down somewhat. And of course the, the African science done by colleagues like Beatrice Hahn and 
and others is absolutely absolutely astounding science um so um that that's where it is but yeah these uh, jim made a very interesting comment a few weeks ago in another discussion we had that you know epidemiology is a science that it's a science of comparison so it almost inevitably pits one group against another so to speak and highlights differences and differences that could be exploited by people of who, who don't have the same good intentions it used to be uh when when harold and i got started in std work um that california wouldn't report stds by race because they thought it would be uh, subject people to discrimination and stigma and uh, of course sexual orientation would be even worse in, in, in that sense but if you think about it the problem isn't the, the discriminatory nature of epidemiology and reporting surveillance per se it's how people misuse that to stigmatize and to discriminate in the bad sense of the word um, because if you don't report information then you're not being honest and transparent now the problem with the early Haitian migrants um, is that Haiti, of course, has been probably maybe the uh, most suffering country in the world in some ways post-independence, and they continue to suffer now, um, and they've been discriminated against in their home uh, for a variety of reasons in a variety of places. So when, uh, when, when Baby Doc was acting particularly badly and more than 100,000 Haitians came over to the United States. Uh, they were Haitians that were new, in a sense, uh, immigrants compared to the previous decades of immigrants. And they were new to be exposed to the AIDS virus. And so they popped into Florida mostly and represented more than half of the cases in the state at the time. Now, there were pressure on us uh, not to call them Haitians. <laughs> you know, why would you identify them as Haitians? But in fact, they were Haitians and they were new Haitian migrants. And that was an important um, part of the epidemic to identify them that way. And then initially to um, have them not donate blood before the, anything could be done about it other than to make a recommendation. Um, and that led, you know, that reinforced the discrimination that they felt. But the, the problem are the policies that come from distinction rather than the distinctions themselves. Because if you stop to, if you stop the distinction, then you're not telling the whole truth. We see this now a lot with a lot of things that are, uh, part of health disparities in the United States where, um, Black women, for example, are more likely to die from childbirth. I mean, uh, and then if you start to look into it, you find out there's lots of problems of that related to the healthcare system and, um, and and other things related to hypertension and all sorts of other things. But if you don't look into it because you say it's going to be discriminatory, then, of course, you don't get to the bottom of it. Yeah, if I could just add, um, an English colleague, uh, Nikki Lowe, and I wrote a paper, I think, in the 90s, looking at the United Kingdom uh, surveillance practice for HIV, tuberculosis, and STIs. And those three diseases actually are disproportionately affect different um, minority groups. And if you, as Jim says, if you don't 
categorize it, then you miss it. And in, in France, it is illegal to collect data by race ethnicity, but it opens the possibility that you know major problems um, are actually being completely missed. So it's a it, it's it's a it's a difficult and complex issue. I was really worried about this with the monkeypox epidemic, which was uh, demonstrably um, much much more common in gay men in the United States and Europe. And I was afraid that people were going to say it's not you know, restricted to gay men. It's, you know, we should be prioritizing everybody who has sexual encounters. And then that lead, would lead you to a misuse of the rare vaccine that was available. But I think that it was handled, it, it would never would have been handled that way in the 1980s. People would have, I don't know what they would have done. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, now at least we can prioritize the people who most need the monkeypox vaccine and can crush an epidemic which is entirely crushable as opposed to the other epidemics we face which are much more difficult to deal with. So we're beginning to get some questions in the Q&A from the audience and audience please put your questions in we'll get to as many of them as we can. Um, one of the questions goes back to something that uh, I mentioned before. Um, Kimberly Scott wants to know are there any key lessons learned from the global response, so PEPFAR, Global Fund, UNAIDS, that we have yet to apply to our domestic response in the United States to end the epidemic? So, so what are some global lessons that we could apply here? It's not that you don't know some. <laughs> it's such a hard question. <laughs> now, now, there are many debates about vertical versus horizontal health system approaches and so on. But PEPFAR unquestionably has had a major impact on global health. And the differences between countries where PEPFAR has operated and where it hasn't, including in those countries' response to other epidemics such as Ebola, uh, are really quite striking. So, you know, one might ask, well, does the United States need its own PEPFAR program? Um, you know, the, this, uh, our country is a federal country and being the federal divisions offers strengths, but also difficulties, certainly in terms of very fragmented health systems and health reporting, as we've seen with COVID. Um, so I think one of the lessons is the and, and I'll, I'll stop there. It's the funding and the, um, um, the, the very committed effort and the political drive um, associated with pretty liberal use of the funding to address a very specific problem. So uh, Melanie, another question that I see in the, in the chat um, is, is one that I want to, I would like to toss uh, to, our, to our guests now, but even before that, just to remind everyone uh, that the book is available. Uh, it's available on uh, Amazon Kindle. Uh, I'm, I'm not promoting Amazon, but it is there. Um, so uh, I, I do want to uh, make sure that people have a chance to get this book. Uh, I think it's worth uh, it's worth reading. The, the question from the chat is has to do with uh, with uh, blood donations. Um, 
and a, a subject that the CDC has been very involved in really up until just, I think, a couple of weeks ago when some changes came out. Uh, does anyone want to comment on, uh, on how that was handled and especially how gay men and uh, uh, others are allowed or not allowed to donate blood? A lot of this goes back to an infamous meeting in January 1983 that was chaired by Jeff Copeland, who subsequently became CDC director. And there was clear evidence that the virus was being transmitted by blood donation. And there's some great photographs in the book too, right, Harold? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. There were cases in hemophiliacs and cases in transfusion recipients. And the question was what to do about it. We thought there'd be a very rational discussion with blood donor, blood banks and National Hemophilia Foundation. It quickly turned into a very irrational debate about did the disease actually exist. But there was consensus that there needed to be something done to increase blood safety. The options were to do some sort of surrogate testing to try to eliminate the risk testing for hepatitis B antigen or whether to categorically ban donors of certain types, including gay men and Haitians. CDC opted for the latter. And I th although I think it clearly led to some discrimination against those groups, did help protect the safety of the blood supply. So I think even in retrospect, it was the right decision to make. I don't know what you think about that, Jim. I, I think it saved thousands and thousands of lives. <laughs> and, I, and there was no, uh, you know, uh, at the time, there was no cause known. You know, we didn't know what caused AIDS, but we knew that it, it could be, whatever it was could be transmitted by blood and we knew the people who were most affected by it. So I think we didn't have much choice, but also it was a very bold thing to do that was important. Now, over time, after the antibody tests became available, there were various policy decisions which could have been sped up in terms of not using these kind of recommendations, uh, and it could have been done faster, but I think I think in 1983, before even before LAV was reported from the French, we were able to have recommendations to protect the blood supply and also recommendations to protect people who were at risk from acquiring it sexually. And uh, so I'm, I think that that was one of CDC's strongest moments, if you will. And we were also able to get the endorsement before it came out of all the major AIDS organizations and 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 uh, and gay organizations and all of the medical organizations in the country, uh, so it was a universally accepted set of recommendations. I have a quote in the book from Bill Feige, who was the CDC director at the time, saying that the recommendations that were made before knowing the cause of AIDS were essentially correct. And we're all done based on epidemiologic studies. And I think that's very true. It gives us an indication of the strength of epidemiology and sorting out these sort of problems, even before we know the cause. We have another question in the chat that is sort of a, a broad reflective question. Um, in hindsight, Timothy Thomas wants to know, are there things that could have been done differently in response to the HIV pandemic? Obviously, uh, 
if we had known from the very beginning what the cause was, things might've been done differently. But you know, now that, that we are in 2023, we're still seeing people die of AIDS uh, down the street from me at uh, Grady Hospital. Uh, we haven't ended the epidemic. Um, what, what kind of wisdom can you bring to bear about uh, some of the things that might've turned the course in a different way? And limit yourself to a one-hour comment. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I think the yeah, I think the epilogue of the book actually tries to answer that question and pulls together themes that remain relevant today, despite the enormous advances in science, technology, different politics, and everything else, and and of course major other epidemics and the recent. The, the recent pandemic. And I, you know, the sorts of things we discuss are science, you need good and quick scientific understanding, leadership, uh, the community response that Jim talked about earlier. Government has to be at the center of responses to nationwide threats like this, good communications, continuity of effort, and um being ready to for the next one. Um and and being ready to see if things start going badly after initial success. And I think you could sort of look at each of those themes and say, well, what could we have done better and differently? I mean, and, and to, to, to an extent, we discuss that in parts of the book, like communications, for example. Those yeah, would be my comments. Very important question. I, I, I want to make sure we get to one comment from the chat um, from somebody, again, who could... Uh, definitely be part of this discussion, Jerry Friedland uh, from Yale, originally from uh, the Bronx, but also uh, with a lot of work in Africa. Uh, he wants to make sure that we do talk about the issue of, of HIV and injection drug users. Uh, we've, we've not really specifically talked about that, but um, obviously a, a hugely important uh, part of this uh, epidemic. Uh, Jim, you wanna? Well, I'd, I'd like to, first of all, uh, um compliment Jerry Friedland and his colleagues in, in the Bronx in New York. Uh, my biggest regret, I mean, you can't change the president. You can't change the early discovery of HIV. You can't change debates between Gallo and Montagnier. You can't, there's a lot of things you simply cannot change if you're a CDC. But what my biggest regret is that we colored inside the box too much in the federal government by not pushing SAMHSA and NIDA more than we did. Now, you know, it doesn't say that we could have done that necessarily, but I think that the neglect of the injecting drug use community, even though they were spurred on by uh, Jerry Friedland and others, to dealing with injecting drug use was at the heart of the epidemic in Blacks and Puerto Ricans in the East Coast and the Black and Hispanic epidemic in women and children. And we simply didn't do anything with it but fight with people about needle exchange and, and, and fight with people about block grants to states and, and bullshit like that, that I think might have had a bigger impact on the AIDS epidemic in, in black and Hispanic uh, women and children and, and heterosexual men um, earlier. And I think, you know, we did a lot of screaming about the epidemic more than, than the uh, Department of HHS and more than the Reagan administrator wanted but it was generic screaming 
It wasn't screaming about the AIDS epidemic and drug users and women and, and children uh, like it should have been. And I remember patting myself on the back for doing such a great job in San Francisco, you know, with our very enlightened politicians and health department, and Jerry pointing out uh, that, you know, uh, I didn't know what I was talking about, that the challenge of, of dealing with the very complex epi epidemic in, uh, in, in New York and minoritized communities and injection drug users was a huge challenge compared to what the relative ease that we had in San Francisco. So uh, uh, credit to Jerry for uh, keeping our keeping our heads on straight. And it was discovered about the same time. I mean, one of the first three New England Journal articles was from Henry Mazur, Ida Honorado and others uh, on, on this epidemic. So, you know, we should have been screaming about that sooner. Yep, yep. Melanie, do you want to close us up here? We're, we're getting close to the to the top of the hour, it seems to me. Uh, well, I think we are. Um, so, you know, I I would just um, ask all of you for a brief comment. Uh, another hour uh, discussion that we could have, but uh, uh, <laughs> a brief comment of what is the single most important thing that we can do now to end the HIV epidemic? If 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 you had the magic wand to wave, what is the single thing that is the most important in 2023? Well, you're referring to the US or globally? Well, let's let's keep it domestic for, for starters because uh, this is, uh, uh, because the book is mainly about CDC, uh, but let's talk domestically. I think the biggest challenge has to do with black MSM. They constitute the majority of new cases in the United States. And we just haven't been able to reach that community. Maybe using the term community is the problem because it's not really a community. It's a set of individuals who feel very stigmatized by their race and their sexual orientation. And we just haven't done an adequate job in reaching them. Uh, I think a lot of it comes to uh, dealing with the social determinants of health other than just medicine and also dealing with complacency. Uh, I'm, you know, today I happen to be worried about what's going to happen to PEPFAR because of complacency, whether they take a lot of the money away or take it away from AIDS. Um, but I think the issue, for example, of, of uh, of the so-called ending the epidemic, which I've never been a favor of the term, um, points out that this is not just about um, uh, people only uh, uh, learning about, um, uh, you know, uh, antivirals and taking them, but it's a question of all the other things that make it difficult for that to happen. And that includes communication, it includes uh, housing, it includes uh, discrimination in their communities based on race, not just on AIDS, uh, includes drug use, includes mental health issues. And unless we, you know, we're not accustomed to dealing with this in any, any way with any disease in the United States or with healthcare in general, with our, you know, our, our global worst uh, healthcare system, in many ways, and our, our certainly our global worth health worse uh, health financing system, 
Um, but we have to recognize these things are important. You know, why not have everybody with HIV be eligible for Medicaid automatically, for example? Why not have, you know, I mean, we just have to be able to deal with this in a much more holistic way and have a voice that does that. And the complacency allows the voice to go away, whether it's diminishing PEPFAR, diminishing AIDS research or anything else. And we need to get back in, on our, uh, and, and talk about this. And IDSA and infectious disease physicians were responsible not only for the domestic commitment, but also for the global commitment. I think American physicians that work on AIDS had a lot to do with paying attention globally to AIDS. So all you guys can do a lot. And I'll finish just by, I mean, echoing what my colleagues have said. Um, it's really about, a, you know, determination to apply the very powerful tools we do have where they're needed and how to get them to where they are needed and to be much more pragmatic about what we can do. And in that regard, I think the whole issue of drug use is a prime example where much more pragmatism is required. Um, um, and dealing with discrimination and stigma and so on. I do want to, uh, before before we do, Claude, I do want to offer two words of thanks also, though. Uh, Robin Mosley was our very capable editor who played an important role in helping us pull the book together. And we, 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 we borrow from interviews, some interviews, with other people um, at CDC um, who were interviewed by Mary Chamberlain and Bess Miller, in an oral health project that's available on CDC and Emory website uh, under the Global Health Chronicles. We, we do borrow sometimes some very useful comments. Um, so I, I, think, uh, I, I think that was important as well. Great, I wanna thank uh, our three uh, uh, panelists today for, uh, for uh, helping us uh, talk uh, this, this morning, this afternoon, also for their work in putting this book together, but most importantly, obviously for their uh, uh, for their uh, groundbreaking work throughout the uh, throughout the epidemic and helping us understand what we're facing, I, I want to thank um, uh, Melanie for co-moderating this, and to Donna Jacobson and the rest of the staff at uh, the International Antiviral Society USA um, for putting this together. And maybe we'll have another hour-long <laughs> session thinking just about the international uh, effort uh, coming soon. So. Again, thanks everyone. And Melanie, do you wanna add your closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I would just say this has been a really inspiring conversation to me. And uh, I wanna thank everybody, uh, not only on the panel, but for those who are in the audience. And thank you for all of your contributions to the field over, over many, many years. And I, I would say that my final word really is about advocacy. And uh, picking up on what was previously said, um, HIV and infectious disease physicians and care providers and people who are working in the field are our most important advocates um, in addition to the community. And so I would just uh, reach out to all my colleagues and say, please use your voices. Please reach out to your, your elected officials. Um, this is not a time for complacency. We have so many challenges and, and thank you all for the good work you do and keep on shouting about it. And very finally, the, uh, the uh, screens just showed a, an upcoming program on long COVID that ISUSA uh, is doing and other uh, ones are shown here. 
the organization tries to uh, uh, reach out to our broad audience. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, we'll see you all soon. Bye-bye.